Hello, podcast fans. Welcome. It's Jordan Rich with another edition of On Mike with JR. Great to be with you. As you no doubt have gleaned by listening to me over the years, I love movies, consider myself a bit of a buff. So whenever I get a chance to talk with others who love film, I take that opportunity. So with me today is Chris DeZio, or Chris D as he's known, host of the relatively new Cult Film Companion podcast, home of movies off, under, and above the cinematic radar. Everything from Showgirls to Bad Santa, Brazil to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and Chris and his colleagues are just getting started. So I want you to subscribe to the Cult Film Companion podcast. Something tells me you will after you hear our conversation. As we welcome Chris D, cult film lover, to join us on mic. I couldn't have asked for a better guest, especially, uh, well, I'm being selfish now, Chris, because I love this kind of stuff. Welcome and congratulations on launching the podcast, man. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Well, let me ask you about the origins of this, not about cult movies yet. We'll get to those. But when did you start it? I know there are about 20 super duper episodes up there and uh, how it all came about. Give us a background sketch. Well, I uh, it started actually guesting on... Uh, other people's podcasts, and it was just a lot of fun. And uh, I was like, "Well, I kind of—I've always been a creative person. I needed some sort of uh, creative outlet, whether it be writing or music. And I've always been a, a, a film lover. So I was like, oh, let me give this podcasting thing a shot. I—I I, I like to talk movies, and I like to listen to podcasts about movies. But you know, the way that." things are now there's there's so many podcasts out there. there there's uh there's so many and i was initially going to just do a horror movie podcast because that's one of my favorites but there's so many of them and i was like what, yeah. what do i really have to to offer if there's already so many other options and then i was kind of looking at my film i just kind of looked at my i'm still a, a physical media collector i love uh mm. physical media and um, so I started looking through my my movies, and I said, "Well, I I, I kind of like some of these weird, quirky movies, and I like movies from um, some of my favorite movies from bigger time directors. They're ones that kind of flew under the radar." So I said, "Why not cult movies?" And there's, I mean, we're not the only cult film podcast out there, but a lot of those cult films podcasts kind of focus more on a. Uh, either the, the obscure horror movies or uh, just kind of weird for the sake of mm -hmm. weird. And mm -hmm. I just think that a cult movie could come from any time period, any genre of film, and from any director. And so I, uh, I just got some friends together, and uh, I have one co-host now that's been with me since the beginning, and we have guests on and we just it's it's fascinating to me because every time that I do an episode I um I do a lot of uh the research for the episodes I'll listen to the commentary if there's a commentary for the movie and I'll watch interviews with the people involved and it always leads me down a rabbit hole to more <laughs> movies so it's just like I know you know <laughs> That's the beauty of it. I've done radio for years and, and often did movie shows, and it was one of my favorite topics, of course, but you get so many sidebars and so many cool offshoots. So uh, let's dig in here and talk about the subject. What, in your estimation, and you kind of defined it already a bit, but what does constitute a cult film? What are the criteria, do you think? 
Well, it's very it's interesting you should ask because I've considered at some point doing a what just an episode on what constitutes a cult movie, and to me, it's something that. But this is my personal opinion. First of all, I, I I'm a strong believer that you can't set out to make a cult movie purposefully. Like, that cannot be your agenda. Uh, from what I've read and from what I've watched, all the movies that I cover on the show, a, a, a lot of them failed at the box office. Maybe Some of them were ripped to shreds by critics. But for some reason, the, the love for these movies has kept going, you know, decades past their shelf mm, life. Mm. Um, also, it's it's something, it's, it's kind of weird. I, I also see a cult movie as something that if I was in the marketing department of a studio, it's not a movie that I would want to market because it's easy to, to come up with a trailer for the latest superhero movie. You put in some action scenes, you put in some dialogue, you put in some tense situations. A cult movie, like, it crosses so many genres and there's so many different elements at play that it's not something that I would want to have to come up with a trailer for because mm -hmm. I don't think I could do it justice. And you know what's true, too? A lot of these films have storylines beyond the plot lines of the movies. In other words, things have happened that have made these movies notorious. I, I, and I'm going to go with your list so far on the podcast. You have one, of course, called Showgirls with uh, Elizabeth Berkley. And that, <laughs> that that's famous for all kinds of reasons, but it had to do with the writer, it had to do with the director, Paul Verhoeven, and it had to do with, you know, the subject matter. But all those controversies that are associated with a film or the director or the actors, that helps constitute uh, cultness, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Showgirls is an interesting beast because it was, I forget what country the writer's from, but it was written and directed by two people, neither one of them are native um, to um, the United States. Mm -hmm. So they have a very odd view of, I, I guess they have a very odd view of of women in general. Mm -hmm. That movie in particular, um, it seems like it's like what I would write as a 13-year-old, what I think, how women interact with each other. Um <laughs> I think you're right, and it's funny. I interviewed Elizabeth Berkley uh, around the time, about a year after that film came out, and she she really didn't want to talk much about it. Uh, she was talking about other projects, but uh, it, it's bizarre, and it still becomes. It's almost sometimes, as you point out on the podcast, so artfully, it, it's stuff that's so bad it's good. So, for instance, Russ Myers. Since we're on the subject of women and women's body parts, Russ Myers. <laughs> Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. The Valley of the Dolls was bad enough, but you had to go beyond. That That is so bad, and yet you can't take your eyes off it in some cases. I had never seen that movie until my co-host suggested it for the show. And I, I thank him pretty much every time we do an episode for <laughs> I, I just showing me this movie because it's it just blows my mind. And, and especially... It especially astounds me because Roger Ebert, the Pulitzer Prize winning film critic, is the screenwriter. That is one it's of those great <laughs> sidebar stories I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I mean, the movie's weird enough, just like if you didn't know that Roger Ebert wrote it, but to know that he did is just like, my God, this is just, this this is something. It, it It's one of those movies that you could try to explain to people, and it, it just, you simply will never do it justice. You just got to show it to people and watch, watch their their mouth slowly become a gape <laughs> and their jaw drop to the floor and their eyes kind of glaze over like what am i this is yeah yeah it's it's so again it's uh, shockingly bad and so interesting we're talking with chris d chris dizio or dizio depending on where you are and what part of the world he's a wonderful <laughs> he's a wonderful uh, host of a show called the cult film companion it's a podcast and i i really want more people to catch on and and subscribe and We'll tell you how to do that. I, I want to go through some of the films, and then I'll mention a few that aren't on the list yet that you might want to take up. But um, sure. I noticed um, you, you mentioned you're a fan of horror films, as am I, and I'm often disappointed by horror films that just kind of uh, jump the shark. But why Halloween 3 of all the Halloweens? You know, I didn't. I personally did not want to do Halloween 3. I... But I've learned, I've only been doing this for three or four months, but mm-hmm. I learned that you kind of have to, you know, I'm new to broadcasting. I, I have no experience in radio, but just listening to enough radio, I know that you have to know who your audience is. Yes. And what your audience is going to be invested in. And my uh, my co-host, Andrew, wanted to do Halloween 3, and a friend of ours, Kyle who we've had on a couple, mostly on the horror shows, um, wanted to do Halloween 3, and I had this, <laughs> I had a very interesting relationship with Halloween 3, because when I first saw it as a kid, just getting into horror movies as a teenager, I hated it, because it was a Halloween movie, but there was no Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. And go, since I've grown older and kind of learned about the history of of Halloween 3 and basically John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted um they wanted to do an anthology series from the very beginning they wanted to do a Halloween they wanted Halloween to be a franchise but they wanted each movie to be its own thing mm. and i think that's one of the reasons why Halloween 3 failed initially because they waited until the third installment just to try to start a friend to start an anthology, which is kind of weird. Like if if Season of the Witch was the second Halloween movie, yeah, um, I don't think it would have gotten nearly as much hate <laughs> if they had just dropped Halloween from the title and just called it Season of the Witch. I don't think it would have gotten as much hate. Yeah. You know what else is interesting about that movie? I just looked it up again while we're speaking to remind myself. It stars as the male lead, a guy that is so associated. When you see his face, you'll know what I'm talking about, folks. His name is uh, Tom Tom Atkins, Atkins. who is still around, by the way. Still, you know, he's retired, I guess, but he's still around. And he was the guy that you'd see in all those 80s and 70s B horror movies as the guy, right. you know, the, the the police detective or the doctor or the, or the dad. Uh, just so funny that these same people show up. But that's an interesting point you make about it not featuring Michael Myers, and that's why it stands out. And, but it, 
the people that make that argument, and I used to do this juvenile argument on Facebook pages, I'm like, well, you know, Friday the 13th, the first one, had Jason Voorhees in it for 10 seconds in a flat, in a dream sequence. Right. You know, it's like, I mean, if that's, if that's, if your only gripe with the movie is that it doesn't have Michael Myers, I, I, I think that's an unfair <laughs> criticism. I think you need to judge the movie on its own. By the way, you just said something that rang true with me. Uh, arguments like this that more normal people, I'm not going to consider myself normal, most people would say, what are you guys, weird? You're talking about this like it matters? Well, it does to people who love cult films, right? This stuff matters. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I'm trying to get a, a, away from <laughs> from that um, because as I've started to do the show, I'm like, I mean, I could easily... It, and the thing is, it's. I'll, I don't want to say it's a negative thing that these other podcasts do. A lot of them, they kind of make fun of the movie. Yeah. Um, on our show, we we, with a few exceptions, Andrew's uh, he he refused to finish watching the people under the stairs. But for the most part, the movies that we cover are movies that like we get a kick out of watching. We genuinely enjoy them, and. Well, I, it's, I, I think if I don't want to speak for you, but I think you're absolutely correct looking at the list of films. I mean, you put Bad Santa with uh, Billy Bob on there, which is hysterical. Uh, Repo Man, which has always gotten great reviews by critics over the years. I mean, these are not schlocky, all schlocky films. Brazil is on your list. And that, yeah. of course, is one of those movies that'll just play with your head for a couple of years. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> So well, I want you to go back in time in, in your own life, and you're a lot younger than I am, but when you were a kid, was was there a movie that you really, really desperately wanted to see, couldn't get your hands on it, or your folks wouldn't let you see it? Because I've got one of those, or several of those. Oh, I mean, I, going to the video store was like a treat on the weekends, you know, for if you were good all week getting to rent a movie. And I always remember being more interested in the films that my father was renting than the films that mm -hmm. I was allowed to rent. Mm -hmm. um, I distinctly remember him. Uh, he had rented Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was uh, this. Uh, I must have been very young to not have been able to see that. But I just remember... There, there was always movies. There's, um, there was always video covers that stuck out to me, and um, if I was, it's one of those things. That it's, it's like it's a taboo. If you're told you you can't watch something that you want to watch it even more. Right. No, yeah, you're um, right. You're right. But I, I the, for one, for one reason or the other, there was one video cover, and it's not a particularly. I mean, it has its defenders, and it's not an awful movie. Is the cover of "I Spit on Your Grave," <laughs> which wasn't even R. I think it was NC seventeen, and it's it's funny. It's actually the the cover is like a woman, the back of a woman, and you could you know like her, you could see her her butts and like she's carrying a knife but it's shot from behind it was just like this woman has like desecrated these men and no jury would convict her 
Uh, it turns out that, that that the person on the original cover of the VHS of I Spit in Your Grave is Demi Moore. Oh, my God. Nothing else to do with the movie, but that was her. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me, let me share with you, and I want you guys to, to check this out. You don't have to do it on your show, but it's the most... It was billed as the goriest movie of its time. And when you're 12 years old and a movie freak, as I was in 1970, this was the one. It was called Mark of the Devil. Have you ever heard of this one? I have not. Okay. Mark of the Devil was was about, uh, I think it took place in the 1700s in Austria, of all places. And it actually stars Herbert Lom, who was a great British actor, and a bunch of Austrians. And so it's half dubbed and half English. And it's 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 ridiculously horrible. It, and one of the scenes promised to show, get this, somebody getting their tongue pulled out. Now, I thought, this has got to be the cool. How are they going to do this in the movie? So I, I actually snuck into a movie theater when I was 13, snuck in, saw this ridiculous, gory gore fest. And it's become a cult classic since. So that's the kind of movie I was going to, I'm begging myself to see. And I got a chance to do it. Um Wow. Yeah, that's um yeah, that sounds like the kind of movie uh that would make me too squeamish as a kid. I uh the first movie that ever scared me and like really scared me was Jaws. I oh, was yeah. terrified after watching that. I kind of refused to go to the beach for a couple years. Um and and now I really don't yeah, I it, and then, like, I watch so much horror movies that horror movies that I become like desensitized mm-hmm. to certain, you know, the violence. Um, I kind of, I, I think, I kind of outgrew horror, and that's when I started watching some weirder movies, and that's kind of where I started my my love of of uh, of these weird, uh, just kind of like obscure little movies that um, right. kind of flew under the radar. Well, some, um, some of them, uh, Chris, become huge over the course of 50 years. And I'm going to mention one that you, of course, are familiar with, Harold and Maude, which is a yes. quirky comedy that had become legendary. Now, 50 years ago, it's hard to believe. I wanted to ask you about one particular one-word title that you guys have talked about because it happens to be remade this past year. And we're talking about Dune, and you guys oh, are yeah. you guys are looking at the nineteen early eighties version by of all people David Lynch, which is still remarkable to me. Talk a little bit about Dune in eighty three or four, and why that's a cult film. The reason that it's a, I I, I kind of have to say that I I think that the only reason that it's still a cult movie is because of David Lynch. Mm. I think that if anybody else had directed it, it kind of probably would have not have remained in the spotlight as much as it did. And as a huge David Lynch fan, uh, I kind of came around because I watched the movie about three times before we did our podcast. It started out being like my least favorite David Lynch movie ever. Mm. And, but I, I've, I've had to bump it up a couple notches. It's, it's very, it's so weird because I, I was not familiar with the books. And thankfully for that episode, I brought a friend of mine on who has read all six of the original Frank Herbert books. Mm-hmm. So she was able to, to fill in a lot of the gaps. And I think the problem with David Lynch's Dune is trying to adapt this massive book with uh, 
this massive book with, that has its own history, it has its own language to it, it, it it's too much for a two-hour movie. It's, you know, if you're going to split it up into a, a ten-part HBO series, then you have time to flesh out these characters. That's a, that's, that's one thing, but Dave, you know, he was kind of like pushed into a corner of being like, you know, we have this massive book, we need to adapt all of it, and, you know, he wanted to do a four-hour movie, which would have been able, he would have able to do justice to the source material, and I think that's the wise thing that the Dune remake right. is doing, is that right. they're splitting it up into two movies, because they know that there's no way you could cover all this material in one movie. It's kind of... um. It would be kind of like uh, the Stephen King it, movies, or or Lord it's, of the Rings, uh, trying to do all of Lord of the Rings in one film, uh, which exactly. is exactly it's um it's it's too much, and they weren't thinking that way. I, I think that had David Lynch tackled Dune like after the success of Lord of the Rings, they would have said, okay, well, obviously we need more than one movie, but they were kind of. They were kind of set on doing a Star Wars for adults, but it just is is it just kind of I don't know. Well, it was <laughs> casting. The casting was interesting too, with Sting and uh, on the others, and and of course the advances weren't there yet. So it, the sand creature looked pretty lame, and I mean there were a lot of issues with with it. But it's interesting. David Lynch is a great example. I I am not a fan of some of his most famous work, but he did a a simple little film that didn't become a cult film, but it was one of my favorite films called The Straight Story about a guy who gets yes. on a lawnmower and and it starred that old actor whose name escapes me, but it was a great film and uh, and simple, a rated G for David Lynch, unbelievable. And, uh, and I think that shows great range. But let me ask you about some of these other directors like uh, Roger Corman, for instance, or John Waters or Terry Gilliam. They're almost designed to be cult directors, aren't they? You know, and this goes back to my... Uh, to my um my point, I don't know, I, I would say Terry Gilliam never sets out to make a cult movie. He just wants to make movies, and he wants to make movies well, and he wants to, he wants to be embraced by the mainstream, from what I could tell by a lot of his interviews. But he, his, um, his imagination and the kind of movies that he tackles uh, they just kind of lend themselves to eventually becoming cult movies because the, the movies are just kind of weird, you know? It, it, they're very... It's it's not easy to digest for certain people. It's not yeah. a fast... I, 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 I kind of think of... Um, there's certain movies that I call, like, fast food movies, and uh, you kind of put your brain on hold, and it's, it's very easy to get through, and... Um, you might have a stomach ache afterwards. And then you have something like uh, Brazil, Terry Gilliam, where you you kind of have to sit there with the movie for a while and you kind of have to let it digest and kind of seep into your brain and really think about it. Roger Corman, that's an interesting one because I don't know if he sets out to make cult movies. I think he just likes... I think he genuinely likes to make movies. He genuinely likes to make money, and he has been extremely 
popular for cranking out all these movies. Well, you, you can say it. He's a cheapo. He doesn't like to spend any yeah. money. And, and <laughs> he, it's a legendary. <laughs> he, he is. But on the other hand, he's got an eye for talent because the people that um, have gotten their start in Roger Corman movies oh, are yeah. astounding. Nicholson. Ron Howard, Francis Ford Coppola, James Cameron. Like Jack Nicholson. People got their start doing Joe yeah. Dante. Got yeah. their start doing Roger Corman movies, and now look at you know they've made some of the most popular movies that have lasted with us. So no, you're you're so right, Chris. You're so right. Yeah. He's kind of yeah. Uh, he is he he is very much a cheapskate, but he also he's got an eye for talent, and that's undeniable. Just given the 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 pedigree of people that have come from his. All right, I've got a two-part question or observation, and the first part of it is, within the last, say, 10 years, has has there been a film or a series of films that have the potential to go cult if they haven't already? Just, you know, wondering, because you see probably more movies than I do, maybe. And then I have a follow-up question or statement about some classics from the past that I wanted you to think about. But what about the current crop of films that we're seeing uh, uh, is there a cult film that we should be looking for now that's been out for the last couple of years? Yeah, I can name you a couple. Okay. Um, and I could also name you a uh, just a, a film studio. Actually, I'm not sure if they're a studio or a distributor, um, but they've uh, they put out some really weird stuff. There's a company called A24. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen their logo. Um, they, they've put, they, they, they will put stuff out that, other other companies wouldn't, and they're a company that even if the movie doesn't look particularly interesting, it's something I'll check out um, just because I kind of trust their brand and they're they're new and everything I've seen they haven't served me wrong. But um, a couple that I would say, there's a, have you seen the movie In Bruges? No. Okay, In Bruges I think is a future cult. Uh, comedy gangster movie um stars colin farrell ray fines brendan gleason it's about two hitmen that are sent by their employer to uh hide out in bruges after a hit goes wrong and it's a it's a very un-pc comedy there's some violence um, there's, it's a, it, they're hit men, but it's much more of a, a very dark comedy, I would say. And I think it's a cult classic because I think this is one that people are going to start finding out about because the writer director has gone on to much greater fame. After this, he did a movie called seven psychopaths. Oh yes. Yes. And oh, then that after one. that, he did the uh, three bill three billboards outside of uh, something Missouri or something. Three billboards, Kansas. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, he won an Academy Award for that, or somebody did. Uh, Francis McDormand, he, I think. I, I think Francis McDonough might have won the Academy yeah. Award. Um, so it's kind of like um, that. His first movie, I think, is destined to be a future cult movie. Well, actually, I have a love hate relationship with uh, Guy Ritchie. Mm. And um, I love some of his movies, and I absolutely hate some of them. <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, does any of his movies actually have a cult following? And I found one that I had never seen, and I picked it up. It's called uh, 
Rock and Roller. Not familiar with that one. Snitch, I am. Yeah, it's um, Rock and Roller. It's something he did. He was. This was kind of like after his career died for the first time after the whole Madonna debacle and mm. before he kind of came back to life with Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one's a, that one. I think is going to be a future cult movie. There are two movies by a director that I really like. Uh, one's called uh, Blue Ruin, and the other one is called Green Room. Oh, Green Room with the Patrick Stewart, yes. Yeah. That's great. That's a good one. And uh, before Green Room, he did a movie called Blue Ruin, which is it's a great revenge story uh, because it kind of deals with an everyman going through revenge for what happened to his family, but it's also the most realistic mm-hmm. depiction because this guy, he, he's, he's got no training. He's, he, he messes up. He gets people in trouble. It's, it's just, um, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant little movie. Excellent. Good choices. I wanted to mention though, because I'm, I'm a student of the old, old days, Prior to 1934 or 35, when the Hayes Code went into effect in movies, and they sort of cleaned up the movies, there were some amazing films. And I know uh, most people out there who are film buffs have heard the the title "Freaks" by Todd Browning. Um, oh yeah, which, which is a, a cult classic for a lot of reasons. It's uh, fascinating. It's breathtakingly uh, absorbing to see these actual. Well, they were called freaks back then, but uh, people with disabilities performing in this circus in this movie, and it's uh, chilling. And there are two others. I'll just mention them very quickly. One is The Island of Lost Souls, which was the original uh, island of Dr. Moreau uh, with Charles Lawton, which is so spooky and and creepy and interesting. And then The Black Cat, which was uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi teaming up in an Art Deco-style horror kind of film about devil worship. Again, these are just a few, but I love going back. I'm so glad you talked about today, but I love going back to the past and looking at some of these breathtakingly interesting films that have become cult faves. Yeah, I um, I found at my local 7-Eleven this uh, one of those uh, kind of like 10 horror movies for $5 kind of deals. Mm. But it's uh, got the original Night of the Living Dead. It's got White Zombie. It's got Carnival of Souls, The Last Man on Earth, House on Haunted Hill, the original Little Shop of Horrors. Best five bucks I ever spent. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that you're still a hardware guy and you like the uh, hard copies. It's like me with books. I refuse to read a book on a screen. I need to have it in my hand. But uh, going forward, the, the podcast is young and it's got a lot of growth and you must be you sound like you're having a blast with it and i i just want people to discover you and have you guys uh take over the the reins as the number one cult podcast so wishing you and your your buddies good luck on that we'd uh we'd absolutely love to yeah i i came up with a little tagline we're the home of movies that are off under and ahead of the cinematic radar Yes, I love that. That's really good, and I love your logo too. When people see it, they'll uh, they'll appreciate it. It's eye catching. I, I got to give credit to my friend Paul Paolino um, for doing that. He uh, he he does all our title cards. He came up with the logo. 
Um, so I, I got to give all credit to him for that. He took my, my, my crazy ideas and somehow made them into, uh, something eye catching. And, um, yeah, uh, we're, we're looking forward. The next movie, we just dropped repo man, which is just, I mean, that's, that's like, if you, that's like gotta be in your top five cult classics. Like if people haven't seen repo man, my God, just like, well, it, it's not only a cult, but it's a great film. I mean, it works on so many levels. The Harry Dean Stanton uh, appearance, um, Estevez, it's great. It's a great movie. Great concept. Yeah. And it's kind of like a secret handshake. If you know Repo Man and you start, you know, doing dialogue back and forth with someone, it's kind of like an inside joke. I've noticed with a lot of people that they know Repo Man. They know the, they know the lines. Um, and it's just a blast. Yeah, it's kind of like Fight Club. You know, if you're a Fight Club fan of that film, you you, you know the inside baseball lines. <laughs> you know exactly right. Uh, well, listen, Chris, I really really uh, enjoyed speaking with you. I'm so glad you reached out to me. We connected offline, and I said uh, we got to get you on to promote this because it's uh, one of my favorite things and and growing in popularity around the world. So uh, people should check out Cult Film Companion. We'll give you all the details as to how. But I wish you the best, and uh, and you've made us forget a lot of our troubles with all this. So thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm trying to you know give someone an alter like an alternative to watching the the typical uh, kind of Hollywood schlock that gets put out there. Try 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 dipping into something from uh, you know Sam Peckinpah now and again. And, uh, <laughs> get your mind blown. Outstanding, Chris. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Wonderful again to meet up with Chris Dizio, Chris D., host of the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Just look for it wherever you find your podcasts and you won't be disappointed. To wrap up, we say thanks to Dan Tebow of Vast Witch Media for his help in publishing the podcast and for his friendship, and also to Chart Productions in Boston where this podcast and many others are produced. Check out jordanrich.com to find out more about me and the show. And until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.